This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Okay, there's a second rock episode that we find in the Old Testament. And that rock episode is found in Numbers 20 and verses 7 through 11. Numbers 20 verses 7 through 11. Are we understanding so far? Very simple, right? Nothing complicated. No deep theological thoughts here. Just simple things to understand. God makes this truth simple. We're the ones who complicate it. Now notice Numbers 20 and verses 7 through 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take your rod... You and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together. But now notice there's a difference in this rock episode. It says, speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock. So in other words, what God is saying to Moses is, Speak to the rock and ask the rock to give you its water. And, of course, Moses at this point is uh, quite aggravated with Israel. He's been with them for about 40 years now. Never lost his temper once. That's amazing. He was really close to the Lord because there was plenty of reason for aggravation. <laughs> just, just read the history of Israel. One rebellion after another. Ellen White says that, this, that if he had not committed this one sin, right before he entered the promised land, he would have been translated from among the living. But he had to die because of this one sin. And so God tells Moses, you go, You struck the rock already, once. Now, you speak to the rock, and the rock will give its water. But what does Moses do? He's infuriated. And so he takes the rod, and he strikes the rock twice. In his fury. And this kept Moses out of the promised land. Why? Patriarchs and Prophets, page 418. Ellen White has the deep messianic explanation. She says, By his rash act, Moses took away the force of the lesson that God purposed to teach. The rock, being a symbol of Christ, had been once smitten as Christ was to be once offered. The second time it was needful only to speak to the rock as we have only to ask for blessings in the name of Jesus. 
by the second smiting of the rock, the significance of this beautiful figure of Christ was destroyed. In other words, Moses destroyed the symbolic meaning of what God wanted to teach. You see, Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews, fell under the judgment of God how many times? Once. He was offered once for the sins of the people. What he did, he did once for all. Time and again in Hebrews you find this theme. Once, once, once for all. He was sacrificed. He doesn't need to die again. So, how do we receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit today? All we have to do is ask. Notice Luke 11 and verse 13. Luke chapter 11 and verse 13. Here Jesus explicitly says that all we need to do to receive the Holy Spirit is to ask. He says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who what? To those who ask of Him. So what do we need to do in order to receive the Holy Spirit? Ask, and you shall receive. Now let me mention something here about the Roman Catholic Church. You know, some people don't like uh, speakers to speak about other denominations and other churches, but it's inevitable that we have to when they go astray from the truth. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that every time that the sacrifice of the Mass is offered, Jesus is offered again in sacrifice. They actually believe that the host, that is the little wafer, is transformed or transubstantiated into the body of Jesus Christ. Now its appearance is still and its taste is wafer. But by a mysterious uh, miracle, it's even though it looks like a wafer and it tastes like a wafer, it's the flesh of Christ. And the cup or the wine that the priest drinks, he's actually drinking the literal blood of Christ. Because in the Mass, Christ is sacrificed again and again and again. Now, if Moses was excluded from the promised land for teaching that, how does God feel about a church that teaches that idea today? It takes away from the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The death of Christ on the cross was sufficient. He does not need to die anymore. It is enough for us to pray and receive the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk a little bit about Pentecost. Is the pattern clear? Sacrifice and then what? Fire. Striking the rock and then what? Water. So the fire and the water bear a direct relationship with the sacrifice or the offering of Jesus Christ. Now let's talk a little bit about what happened on the day of Pentecost. 
the sanctuary had several key places. We usually begin our study of the sanctuary in the court. But really, we shouldn't begin the study of the sanctuary in the court. We should begin the study of the sanctuary in the camp. It's a fundamental mistake that many times is made. You know, you say the sanctuary begins in the court at the altar of sacrifice. No, it doesn't. It begins in the camp. You see, before the sacrifice of Jesus could be accepted, it was necessary for Jesus to live a perfect life. And where did he live his perfect life? With us. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt can be translated tabernacled or pitched his tent. Israel lived in tents. Hello. So Jesus came and he pitched his tent in our camp. And he faced all of the devil's temptations and he never sinned. He was the perfect lamb. You see, the sacrifice of the lamb was not only important. The lamb, when it was sacrificed, had to be a perfect lamb. Unblemished. The unblemished aspect of the lamb represents the life of Christ. The sacrifice is his death. But his death without his life has no value because he would be an imperfect sacrifice. Are you with me? Now the law of God demands absolute perfection, right? Does the law say, well, I'll let you get away with it this time? No. The law says, obey perfectly and live. If you disobey me in the least particular, you will die. How many of us can offer the law what the law requires? If you raised your hand, that would be the first time that, uh, that you are not offering the law what it requires. Because you'd be lying. The Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So can any of us offer the perfection to the law that the law requires? None of us can. And yet the law requires it. Now, if we don't offer the law the perfection that the law requires, what does the law say? You die. So all of us deserve to. A double whammy. One, we can't offer the law the life that the law requires. And two, the law says, as a result, you have to die. So we're all, all on death row. So why did Jesus come? Jesus came to live the life that we should live. In my place and in your place. And he came to die the death that we should die. He came to live and to die. And if I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, the Bible calls it believing in Him. If I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, and there are conditions, you know, there has to be repentance, confession, and so on. We'll talk about that in our last session tomorrow morning. But when I come to Jesus, and I truly receive Him as Savior and Lord of my life, at that moment, justification takes place. In other words, God takes the life of Christ and he places it to my account. And he takes the death of Christ and places it to, to my account. And God looks upon me as if I had never sinned. 
I am accepted in the beloved. That's why the beloved apostle said that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's important. The advocate is the righteous one. So when, Jesus, when I come to Jesus, I say, I'm a sinner. I repent. I'm sorry. I confess my sin. But Jesus, I, re- I, I believe you lived the life that I should live and you died the death that I should die. I'm a miserable sinner. Please forgive me. That moment, Jesus takes his life and his death and he places it to my, them to my account and God looks upon me as if I'd never sinned. Is that good news? That's great news. You can get a good night's sleep. (laughs) No guilt complex. See, Jesus comes before the Father. He says, Father, I come representing Pastor Bohr. I'm dramatizing for effect. The Father says, well, where is Pastor Bohr? Jesus says, that's immaterial. Don't look at him. Look at me. He received me. I lived and I died. And because I created all, I can take the place of all. And so, Father, don't look at him, look at me. And so, Jesus accepts the righteousness of Christ in my place. The advocate is the righteous one. Because he presents his righteousness before the Father. So Jesus lived his perfect life in the camp. He died at the altar of sacrifice. He resurrected at the labor The labor came after the altar. The labor is called the labor of regeneration. What does it mean to regenerate? It means to give life to something that has what? That has died. So the labor represents the resurrection of Christ. And then what do you have after the labor? You have the holy place. I've never been able to understand how there are theologians in the Adventist church who say that Jesus, when he went to heaven, went directly into the most holy he jumped over the holy place. The next place that you have in the sanctuary is what? Is the holy place of the sanctuary. So where did Jesus go after his resurrection? After the labor. He went into the holy place of the sanctuary. Now let me share, you, share some background with you on this moment when Jesus went into the holy place. Tomorrow we'll talk more about this. Uh, Actually, this afternoon we'll talk more about this. Fascinating to know what happened during the ten days that the disciples were on earth. What was Jesus doing in heaven? You know, we, we hardly ever hear what was happening in heaven. Why did the disciples feel like they had to elect apostle number 12 before the Holy Spirit was poured out? There's a a deep, profound reason for that. In Revelation chapter 4, you have this scene where God the Father is sitting on his throne, surrounding the throne of the 24 elders, which represent those representatives of the worlds that never sinned. Ellen White calls them powerful angels. See, the other worlds each have an angel that was assigned to represent them. This world was different. Adam represented this world originally. I won't get into that. But the 24 elders 
the representatives of the worlds are around the throne. In the midst of the throne are the cherubim and seraphim. They're called the four living creatures. They're the throne guardians of God. Before the throne are the seven lamps of fire which represent the seven spirits. There's not seven holy spirits. The number seven represents fullness of the spirit. So the spirit is present there. The father is present there. The cherubim and seraphim are there. The representatives of the world are there. And they're all singing praises to the one who is seated on the throne because he is the creator. Jesus is not found in chapter 4. And the angelic host is not in chapter 4. And there's not a mention of redemption in chapter 4. The reason why is because in chapter 4, this is the preparation of the heavenly throne room in the holy place to receive Jesus who is on the way from earth to heaven with the angelic hosts. Now when you get to chapter 5, you have the same beings present. You have the fathers, he's sitting on the throne. You have the 24 elders around the throne. You have the four living creatures in the midst of the throne. You have the seven lamps of fire before the throne. But now, suddenly the angelic hosts join the scene. And Jesus approaches the Father. And he approaches the Father as the Lamb, as though he had been slain. Now I want to show you something very interesting that we find here in relation uh, Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. There's an interesting nuance here in the light of what we've been studying. Notice Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5. This is before Jesus arrives at the moment of his ascension. The heavenly throne room is being prepared for the arrival of Christ with the angelic hosts at his ascension. And notice Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5. This clearly shows that this is happening in the holy place. It says, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And seven lamps of fire, notice the fire, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are what? Which are the seven spirits of God. Once again, the number seven represents fullness or completeness, totality. So in chapter 4, the Holy Spirit is there before the throne. The fullness of the Spirit is there before the throne. But now notice in chapter 5 that there's a, a, a change that takes place. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures... And in the midst of the elders stood a what? A lamb as though it had been slain. Sacrifice, right? Now you have the sacrificial aspect. Now is he alive here? Well, it says stood a lamb as though it had been slain. So he has just been what? He has just died on the cross. And now notice a very interesting detail. 
It says, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, which we already noticed in chapter 4, but now notice what happens with the seven spirits of God. Which are the seven spirits of God, what? Sent out into all the earth. What event is being described in chapter 5? The sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And why was it sent? Because Jesus is presenting himself as the Lamb as though he had been slain. Sacrifice, Holy Spirit. Interesting. Now, I want to read you a passage from Ellen White. Oh, by the way, if, before we read that passage from Ellen White, if you want to read a spectacular description of this moment, read the last three pages of, pages of Desire of Ages. Whew. Oh, if you don't get goosebumps from reading that, you won't get goosebumps from reading anything. I mean, it talks about, there about the preparation of the heavenly throne room. And Ellen White, you would never know that Ellen White is commenting on Revelation 4 and 5 because she doesn't use what well, you would know because she quotes a couple of verses from Revelation 5, but she doesn't mention 24 elders. She doesn't mention the four living creatures. She doesn't mention the seven spirits that stand before the throne. Uh, she, you know, she, she, she doesn't say one sitting on the throne. She says God the Father. She never speaks of the Lamb as though he had been slain. What Ellen White does is she interprets the meaning of the symbols without mentioning the symbols. She says, there on the throne was seated the Father. She says, there also present are cherubim and seraphim. Those are the living creatures. She says, also there are the representatives of the world that never sinned. 24 elders. And then she says that Jesus appears before his Father. And he shows his Father the wounds on his hands, on his brow, on his side, on his feet. He's presenting himself as a what? As a lamb as though he'd been slain. Ellen White doesn't use the terminology of Revelation 4 and 5, but she's interpreting Revelation 4 and 5. She's telling us when this happened. And so Ellen White describes how Jesus comes before this father and he says, Father, I need to know whether my sacrifice was sufficient to bring my people home. Wasn't enough! By the way, before that, the angels, you know, when Jesus comes through the gates amidst the, the angel hosts, see, that's why they're not in chapter 4, because they went to get Jesus. <laughs> so now he comes through the gates with the angels, and they're singing and they're praising the Lamb and so on. And suddenly Jesus raises his hand and says, Shh! And everybody is silent. And then... In suspense, Jesus goes into the presence of his Father. He shows him the wounds on his body. He says, Father, I have fulfilled my part of the bargain. Is what I did sufficient to bring my people home? I will that where I am, those that you have given me, be with me. And then Ellen White describes it. She says that God the Father says, yes, it is sufficient. And the Father embraces Jesus 
And then after embracing Jesus, he says, let all the angels worship him. And now the angels start singing even higher strains than they were singing before, praising the Father who is upon the throne and Jesus Christ, the Lamb. And then do you know what God does showing that this event had taken place? He pours out the Spirit upon those who are on earth. And you know, those were only the drops of oil. (laughs) As we'll see tomorrow. See, it was the earthly announcement of a heavenly event. We focus so much on the earthly event that we forget that the earthly event, the tongues of fire, were the announcement that Jesus had been installed as our advocate before the Father. That he was beginning his high priesthood in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Ellen White understood this. You know, some people say that Ellen White wasn't a scholar. Then you would have to say that the Holy Spirit is not a scholar. Because the Holy Spirit inspired Ellen White as the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture. So, you know, she had the best theological education of anyone on earth because she had the Holy Spirit as as her instructor. The same Holy Spirit that inspired Scripture. Notice what she had to say in Story of Redemption, page 386. Story of Redemption, page 386. It's amazing how she understood so many things. Tomorrow I'm going to be sharing with you a few more that show that only someone who was inspired could really come up with these ideas. She says there, the rending of the veil of the temple showed that the Jewish sacrifices and ordinances would no longer be received. The great sacrifice had been offered and had been accepted. You catching the picture? Sacrifice. Accepted. How did God show it? And the Holy Spirit, which descended on the day of Pentecost, carried the minds of the disciples from the earthly sanctuary to the heavenly, where Jesus had entered by his own blood, now listen carefully, to shed upon his disciples, not the whole world, to shed upon his disciples the what? The benefits of his atonement. Do you know what the benefits of his atonement are? His perfect life and his death for sin. Those are the benefits. In other words, he had lived the life that we should live. He had died the death that we should die. Now he goes before the Father. He says, Father, now the sanctuary is open for business. Now I'm ready to accept clients that can come and personally and individually claim the benefits of my earthly work. In other words, the benefits are his life and his death. Was everyone saved at the cross? No. Was provision made for full salvation at the cross? Absolutely. And the Apostle Peter had this straight. You know, when he preached his Pentecostal sermon in Acts chapter 2, it was powerful. 
He didn't even have to make a call. After he finished preaching, the men that were present rushed upon him and said, what do we do? In the light of the fact that Jesus has been installed as Prince and Savior, what do we need to do about this? Come on, make it practical, Peter. And what did Peter say? Repent and be baptized, each one of you. Is this an individual thing? Yes. Each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive what? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what is Peter saying? Peter is saying the sanctuary is open for business and if you repent and you're baptized, you can benefit from what Jesus did. Now let's go to Acts chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8. What was the mission of the disciples? What was the mission and message of the disciples? Do you know each generation has a present truth? What was the present truth when Jesus came to live his perfect life? How did John the Baptist introduce Christ? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's introducing Jesus as the Immaculate Lamb. He's come to live his life. What was present truth when Jesus died on the cross? that he was dying for sin. What was present truth on the day of Pentecost? That Jesus now could apply his life and his death to individual sinners who come and claim those as their own. In other words, that Jesus is now the intercessor. So let me ask you, what is present truth today? It's very easy to determine what present truth is. You know how you can determine what what present truth is? Find out where Jesus is, what he's doing, and preach that. (laughs) Is Jesus on the cross today? Is Jesus living his life on earth today? He's still interceding today, right? But he's interceding where? He's moved to the most holy and he's assumed another function, which is the function of what? Of judge. Now don't misunderstand me. Is his life important? Is it foundational for the Day of Atonement? Is his death foundational for the Day of Atonement? Is his intercession also indispensable for what he does on the Day of Atonement? All of the previous steps are important, but you can't just speak of the previous steps. You have to speak of the previous steps in the light of this. And in the most holy place, you have the distinctive doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Is the law in the most holy place? Is the Sabbath in the most holy place? Is the idea of health reform in the most holy place? The pot of manna. God gave manna to teach healthful, a healthful diet. The state of the dead is in the most holy place. It doesn't take a very intelligent person to figure out that if the judgment began at a certain point of time in 1844, then no one went to heaven to hell before that, before they were judged. And so our pioneers, they they knew that if the judgment began in 1844 and it began with Adam, then Adam could not be in heaven before he was judged. He was in the grave. And then he would be judged and then Jesus would come to take him to heaven. 
Are you understanding me? All of the distinctive truths of the Seventh-day Adventist Church are found in the most holy place. And those are the doctrines that are most despised by the Christian world. And those are the issues that are going to separate humanity in the end time. Is the issue of the law going to be a separating point? Is the issue of the Sabbath going to be a separating point? Is the issue of spiritualism and the state of the dead going to be an issue? Yes, the issues in the end time have to do with the most holy place of the sanctuary. That's why Ellen White says that those who have their faith anchored in the most holy place, that will be to them protection against the many deceptions of Satan at the end of time. But unfortunately, many want to go back and worship in the holy. Now notice what we find here in Acts 1, 7 to 8. There are two, two times the expression is used, you shall, you shall. It says there in Acts 1, verse 7, and he said to them, speaking to his disciples, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now here comes the first, you shall. But you shall receive what? Power. So the first you shall has to do with what? Receiving. You shall receive power. What for? Ah, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and here comes the second you shall. And you shall be what? Witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to where? And to the end of the earth. What was the purpose of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Receiving to give. Ye shall receive and ye shall be witnesses. So if we're not witnesses, it's evidence that we have not received. That might sound harsh, but it's the truth. Now let's get back to the story of the Samaritan woman. We left her uh, that section without commenting on. John 4, verses 13 and 14. John 4, verses 13 and 14. Interesting verses. Let me give you a little bit of background. Jesus is visiting the area of Samaria, and he comes to the place where Jacob's well is found. He's sitting there, it's noon, very hot in Israel at noon. And this woman comes to draw water, which is unusual to draw water at noon because it's very hot. But you see, she didn't want to see anyone because she was a, a woman that did not have a very good reputation. She had had five men in her life and the one that she was living with at that moment was not her husband. So she came at noon, and Jesus is observing. And he says, give me water to drink. And immediately, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask a Samaritan, and a woman at that, to give you water to drink? Now, this woman's self-understanding of Jesus progresses. First of all, she says, you're a Jew. Then she goes on to say, I believe that you're a prophet. 
And finally he says, I believe that you're the Messiah. But anyway, Jesus says, you know, when you drink from the water from this well, you thirst again. But if you drank the water that I would give you, you would never thirst again. In fact, let's read this in John 4, 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, notice the future tense of the verb, that I shall give him, will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him, now listen carefully, will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Do you see the same idea that we noticed in John chapter 7? Did you catch that? Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, so we come and we drink, right? And what is the water that Jesus gives? The Holy Spirit. So we come to Jesus, we ask for the Spirit, we drink of the water, and then what happens? Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him, now listen carefully, will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In other words, you drink from the fountain and you become a fountain. Or a tributary of the fountain, if you please. You know, this woman actually lived this. Because after she accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as her Savior, after she drank of the water and was filled, she goes back to the town where she lives, the town of Sikar, Samaritan village. And she tells everybody, she's not embarrassed now. She says, man, you've got to come and you've got to listen to the words of this guy who could read my life like a book. I think that he's the Messiah. And so now, she comes back to where she, where she had met Jesus and all the town is with her. And meanwhile, the disciples come back to where Jesus is because Jesus had sent them to buy some food and when they come back, they say, here's the food. Jesus said, my food and my drink is to do my Father's will and to accomplish the work that he has given to me. And the disciple says, hmm, maybe somebody brought him food while we were gone. <laughs> they didn't get it. And then Jesus pointed out, he says, you've heard that there's four months until the harvest? Uh-uh. He says, no. Look at the fields. They're already white for the harvest. And Ellen White explains in Desire of Ages that Jesus was not pointing at fields of wheat or barley. He was pointing at this woman that was coming back with all of the town of Sikar to listen to the words of Jesus. The one who had drunk from the fountain had now become a fountain to bring people to Jesus Christ. Ellen White makes a very interesting statement in Ministry of Healing, page 102. 
This applies to us. You know, we're, all, we're always talking as Adventists. You know, things are going slow now, but when the latter rain is poured out, <laughs> we're always looking to some future time when the power will come. Listen to what she says. Speaking about the Samaritan woman, you have this statement in your material. She proved herself a more effective missionary than his own disciples. <laughs> the disciples saw nothing in Samaria to indicate that it was an encouraging field. Las Vegas? No hope. All casinos and secular people. Hmm. Listen to what the disciples were focused on. Their thoughts were fixed upon a great work to be done in the future. Yeah, when the power comes in the future, great work that we're going to do. They did not see that right around them was a harvest to be gathered. But through the woman whom they despised, a whole city full were brought to hear Jesus. She carried the light at once to her countrymen. This woman represents the working of a practical faith in Christ. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Tremendous. So is there a relationship between the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Is there any relationship between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and witnessing? Absolutely. So what do we need? The first thing that we need is a vision of the cross. Don't ask for the Holy Spirit before looking at the cross. You know, what I, when I look at the cross, you know what I see? I see that I'm a miserable sinner. And that my sins led Jesus to go through the experience that he went through. All of his wounds are because of me. When I hear Jesus crying out in Gethsemane, Father, this cup can pass from me. That would be so. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. When, when, I, when I hear Jesus crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I say, Jesus, why? Why did this happen to you? He says, because of your sin. Then I will not want anything more to do with sin. You see, you don't overcome sin by looking at the law, but by looking at Jesus. Because it shows how terrible sin is. You'll never want to get rid of sin until you see what it did to Jesus. And then when you see what it did to Jesus, you come to Jesus, you say, I'm a miserable sinner. I repent, Lord. I confess my sin, but I trust that Jesus, you lived a perfect life and you died for my sin. Please take your life and your death and place them to my account. I'm accepted in the Beloved. He gives me His Spirit, and then I go tell others how good Jesus is. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.